my friends, and welcome to The Two Trees. We're here to talk about angels, demons, ghosts, the pagan gods, and all the weird, wonderful stuff that's in the Bible. We're talking about the beliefs of the ancient world, the way that they talked about the supernatural, all to help you understand the people and context of the Bible, to help you engage on a deeper level with a text of Scripture. But most important of all, we're here to show you Jesus, as Deuteronomy 10:17 describes him, the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, mighty and awesome. I'm John Dillon, and I'm here with Martin Listener. Hey, all. Rose Berry. Nope. Rose. Uh, Rose. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, Rosemary Muller and uh, Jacob the Kessling. What's up, guys? So glad to see you guys here. Back at it. It is hot in this room, but we have a fan, so if you hear like something blowing in the background, that's us trying to the stay gentle alive. Gentle breeze of the Holy Spirit. Oh, he looks different than I thought see? he would. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So we have had a baby at the Dillon house, and I am exhausted. Uh, from uh, all of my super awesome fathering. You did a really good job with the I delivery. I was awesome. Yeah. I was the best I've ever done. That's right. And uh, and all the doctors told me so, that I was amazing. Uh, <laughs> my wife also was there, and she also did an excellent job, and uh, really she did all the hard work, and I did all the fun part. Uh, but um, it's exciting to be here as a dad, and uh, we've got uh, the family here at Jacob's house. My wife and the kids are outside in the sunshine and putting their feet in the pool, but uh, it's exciting. But I don't feel like I haven't seen you guys for a while. Uh, Jacob, I, I heard you've had a tragedy here at your house. Oh, uh, yeah, we, yeah, this morning. So I have to go back a few weeks, not a few weeks, maybe a few months. We went out to the barn. And uh, Martin, I heard that uh, <laughs> yeah. you are doing really well. Uh, short story long here. This is what happened to the... <laughs> No, like four months ago, we lost. We, we had you twenty. Can't tell a four month. We had twenty six chickens, and like we lost all but three, who were extremely traumatized. <clears throat> and so, like we've we've been babying them. We had them, you know. They've they've come back to, back at life. My my son, my youngest son, named them. We had um, one eye Willie. Could I said, hey, it's a girl, so let's call her, you know, Wanda. Like, she could be one. She could be one eye Willie. Then we have no neck back because this is whatever this particular type of chicken doesn't have feathers on his neck, and the other chicken also is missing an eye from from the battle, the slaughter, whatever happened when the twenty three chickens were killed one night, which my fourteen year or thirteen year old at the time cleaned it up. Anyway, Aww. we've been letting them out, and the, the chickens would come to us and follow us all around and all that other stuff. It's been a lot of fun, and Sheila went out, my wife went out this morning to let the chickens out, and they're dead. So. All but one. One survived in the chicken coop, and uh, so yeah, it was just a, it was sad. It's so, a sad uh, day. We, we just to, not good with animals. We have to know which one survived. Um, it's it's the it's the it's not one I when I when I Willie got killed and eaten. And this really sounds sad, but this is how nature works. And then no neck back is gone oh, too. Those were so, my two favorites. I know the the other survived. The the it's a red hen with one eye as well. No so personality. Yeah. We're going to try to give no her friends. away to someone else right. where we have a better chance of survival. we got to send her off somewhere where she can socialize. So if you're tad. out there and you've thought to yourself, I really could use a traumatized chicken, you contact Jacob Kessling I on the Facebook group and he will give you uh, a traumatized chicken. And I thought I had a safe place for these chickens to grow and to thrive, but the stinking raccoon, I think, which I think what it Pulled all these. I had the chicken wire stapled, and just I think it just pulled it loose, just enough to squeeze in. That's aggressive. I know. Yeah. It must have really hated them. 
They were sitting there taunting Or it. it really loved them. It could be. Yeah, that's true. It was very hungry. There's nothing else to eat around here, apparently. Anyway. Uh, well, I'm sorry about your loss and uh, everything else is going well. You've been out celebrating today, Martin. You've got your stars and stripes on, mm-hmm. celebrating Memorial Day. Yeah, I'm recording on Memorial Day, so... Uh, was able to go out and enjoy the sun, maybe a little bit too much. If you, you got burned by my shoulders here, but uh, yeah, I was with the family and was playing uh, some water games. And I was telling Jacob a little bit earlier, it's fun playing with your little nephews because they want to squirt you with all the water until you try to retaliate, and then you're the bad guy. You know, I they get cry. Why did this? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, they have a little squirt gun, and I dump the bucket on them, but that doesn't, you know, that yeah, that's that's I held them underwater a little too long. It's not a problem. And their mother is like, oh, he was like that for me too. Yeah, Brothers are the worst. No, amen. no, Michelle was way worse at, at, towards me than I ever was towards her. Oh, so. you said amen quick. Do you have bad brother experiences? Um, wow. I wonder if my brother will ever listen to this. They won't. They won't listen. Okay. Just In remember case, Jesus is listening yeah. and don't lie to the people. <laughs> okay. This is the real truth. Um, my brother was sometimes really mean to me, but to be fair, I was really stupid. I've, I've just learned since. That Did he tell you that? No. Wait, wait. No. Rose, you, you were saying stupid. You weren't mean back no, I was just gullible. But after okay. I had children and I watched the dynamics, I'm like, man, those younger kids are just dumb. They'll fall for anything, you know? Okay. And I was like, oh, light bulb moment. If you jump out of the hay mow for a dime, you deserve to get hurt. Yeah. You know? Is that what they did? Hey, I'll give you 10 cents. Oh, if yeah. You... He'd be like, I, yeah. Or it'd be a really <laughs> It's not cold... even like you're really old and 10 cents hey, could buy you a bottle I'm of pop. I dare you to take a bite like of that. this. I looked at, he didn't even have <laughs> a dime. If you jump out of this hayloft yeah. 10 times, you still couldn't Make a buck. get yeah. whatever it is you're after. Well, and one time I, I put, um, like we had an old bridge and it was cold out and the bridge had a metal, you know, railing and he's like, lick it. And so I did. Well, then the bus comes and... <laughs> is this when is your tongue stuck to the stuck to it? Okay, and he just runs off to the bus, and I'm like, oh, no. you know, finally ripped <laughs> away, <laughs> left hey, part of my tongue back. there. Who does that? So yeah, he was mean, but I was stupid. You've never seen the Christmas story? I was gonna say yeah, that's I uh, just it did, not then. Let's just say so. Dumb yeah. dumber. <laughs> anything really like Charlie Brown? Be you know anything. Great. Well, guys, I'm really glad to be back with you all and talking about our our series on territorial spirits. Uh, we've had a couple interviews with my friend Josh and and also with Mike Chu, uh, but we are back on topic and we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, Egyptian theology today, the ancient theology of the Egyptians, and and how it corresponds to the Exodus story. And so that's where we're going to be at today. So we're going to be in the Exodus story. But uh, just to give you a little bit of a glimpse into the way that ancient peoples thought about the supernatural world, they didn't really have a concept for a god that was in charge everywhere. Uh, They had gods who had control in the water, or gods who had control in the air, or gods who were in control on a particular mountain or in a specific river. But the idea that the gods would just wander around wherever they wanted and doing whatever they wanted isn't really something uh, that any of the ancient cultures had a category for. Uh, And so when God acts the way that he does in the Bible, it seems to be really surprising to a lot of the ancient cultures that the God of the Hebrews was not a territorial spirit. He was not limited to one mountain or to one element that he was the God of gods. He was the Lord of lords. Uh, And so one of the places that I thought we could look, um, 
oh man, I think I deleted the the reference here, but there's I, a just I, was, I just wanted to comment. <clears throat> to be fair, there really there's not been this this big introduction of the Creator God to everyone everywhere until here. You know, you have these these little pockets of things that take place, um, and he meets with Abraham or Abram. But he's not really done this this big overwhelming introduction like what's going to happen in this Exodus story. So I try, I'm not trying to get some trying to give him some credit. You know, maybe what they had known about God, they didn't know until here. But he's very to educate everybody. Because, so they were believing off their experiences, yeah. right? They they experienced these other lesser gods, if you will, that right. were bound to a certain area. So that that may be why they were believing that because they didn't think anything else was possible. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but it also should then, when they encounter the Lord of Lords, they should recognize him as as the God, the God of gods, of gods yes. and and mm-hmm. worthy of worship. I, I agree with that. And they, when they do encounter the Lord, for instance, the Philistines with the Ark of the Covenant. They didn't get rid of Dagon. They propped him back up in there, and I assume super glued his head and hands back on, and just pretended that. Uh, that that didn't happen. Um, there, there is a text in Scripture that will give you a little bit of a window into the way that the ancient peoples thought about this, and it's in 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. Uh, Martin, would you mind reading it for me? And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys, Therefore, I will give all his multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down on the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day, and the rest fled into the city of Aphek. And the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. So what I want to point out here is, is not really the battle but the worldview that these ancient cultures had. The Israelites lived up in the mountains. They were living in the central hill country of Palestine, of Israel. And so when the Assyrians came down, they thought, listen, we know that the God of the Israelites is tricky, and he has a reputation for delivering his people, but he's a God of the mountains, so let's lure the Israelites down into a battle in the valley. And they thought that that would take care of the situation. It, it doesn't. But that is the worldview that they had. Gods were connected to places and to specific areas of influence. I love this this God of the hills and valleys. I'm, in my simplistic mind, um, it was just, you know, God's the God. He's God when things are good, in the high points of life, and in the low points of life. Oh, yes. and, and, you know, even the song, the God of the hills and the valleys, I am not alone. Mm-hmm. Like, but when you read the text and you understand kind of what they were thinking, this is about space. This is about, okay, let's attack them in the low, low places where we have dominion. God's like, I'm, I am over yeah, all that it stuff. It really isn't it about matter. the happy feel-goods. Is God really God all the time? Yeah, yes. That's a true statement, but that's not the meaning of the text here. It's there to give you a window into spiritual warfare, that if you're trying to catch God on the wrong foot, you won't. There's no tricking this God. There's no coming away with the upper hand if you're in battle against the Lord of hosts. Yeah. He's going to win. 
And we've mentioned that a couple different times with the territorial stuff, how he will, you know, give up the home field advantage to go somewhere else where people think he doesn't have dominion right. just to make it easier for Even them. Even to the extent that he left his whole army behind. Right. Uh, and had his enemy carry him into uh, the the uh, the temple there for, um, oh, what was that guy's name? Uh, da, 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 Dagon. Yes. There it is. I couldn't <laughs> couldn't get it to come to my head. Uh, but this this concept is going to be really important for understanding what exactly is happening in the plagues of Egypt. Egypt was a absolutely wonderful place to try to live. It was a place where the waters were constant. It was a place where there was abundant food. It was a place where the river flooded and for miles around the stream bed, the ground became fertile. And so in many ways, it became almost like a little garden of Eden except instead of being loyal to the Lord, it creates its own pantheon of deities, uh, spirits that they are loyal to. And this abundance that they have doesn't lead them towards love and compassion. It leads them to slavery. It leads them towards misuse of each other. It leads them to um, supernatural evil, witchcraft, all, all of the things that uh, they don't need to be doing because the ground is providing for them. But Egypt almost becomes like a, a, f a counterfeit Garden of Eden. It's, it's a place that has all these things, but it doesn't have the blessing, the approval of the Lord. It, it is a place that is in rebellion. And so the people who lived in Egypt created a very elaborate system to explain the world that they lived in. And they connected their gods, little g, to the physical aspects and the supernatural and metaphysical things that were going on in their lives. Uh, and they really viewed it through a word called ma'at, uh, which is a weird word to us, but it's a word that would have been as normal uh, to Egyptian cultures as something like gravity is to us. Uh, pretty much what ma'at meant is it meant the ordered world. Outside on the edges of the ordered world was chaos, was darkness. And the forces of the gods kept life possible, and they called that ma'at. It was the place where life was possible. And so all of their gods, gods like Apis and Ra of Osiris and Isis of Hecate, they have all kinds of them, and they're all connected with specific attributes of Ma'at. And the god's kingdom was wherever order was maintained. Wherever there was an organized world, the floods came at the right time, the trees were growing the right way, your animals weren't sick, that was a sign that the gods were winning. And when it went the other way, it was a sign that the gods were losing power. And there was a guy named Pharaoh uh, whose job was to be a physical manifestation of the gods. He wasn't just the king. He was viewed as a physical manifestation of the god Horus. And so he acted as a representative between the courts of the Egyptian gods and the Egyptian people. And so if the Pharaoh was doing a bad job, then Ma'at wouldn't be preserved. And if he was doing a good job and the gods were powerful and strong, then everything would go like normal. And, and that's the way the Egyptians viewed their world. 
when you then add into that story the God of gods and his desire to free his people, it's going to completely break the way that the Egyptians viewed what was happening in their day-to-day lives. Does that make sense at all? You guys are looking sense. at me a little bit no, weird. I just have a question. Yeah. Is Ma'at is not a god. It's a state of being. Yeah, it's a state of being. Gotcha. Okay. So it's the god's job to maintain Ma'at. So when order reigns, you have Ma'at. Mm-hmm. And when everything breaks, you have chaos. You have death. You have destruction. And uh, the world devolves into evil and, and bad stuff. Something I'd like you to touch on a little bit more is you mentioned that when Ma'at is not in session, I guess, or however you want to say that, it could be because Pharaoh is not doing his job to mediate between the earth and the gods, or the fact that the gods have lost power mm-hmm. to that. How would how would a god lose power or the ability to maintain this you know, uh, Ma'at? Yeah, well, the Egyptians believed that there were other beings besides their gods. They definitely believed in the gods of other nations, and they also believed that there were other characters who were not creatures of Ma'at, that were evil in their intent. And so the gods did battle with these things. And when they were winning, everything was good. And when they were losing, things were bad. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't just see famine as like, boy, it would be really nice if it would rain every once in a while. They viewed that as a supernatural uh, event. And so when things like that happen, the Egyptians thought of them as supernatural events. Mm -hmm. And so if God is going to communicate to this people, it makes complete sense to me that he would use the language that they're used to thinking Mm -hmm. in. This isn't saying that there really was a, a deity with a frog head and she was in charge of this. I think that there were demonic powers who represented themselves this way. And they could claim to be in charge of this, that, or the other thing. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it's the Lord who is in charge of all. But the Egyptians don't recognize the Lord's authority. And so to get their attention, he speaks to them in a way that they understand. This isn't saying there really is a God who's, you know, lurking in the Nile River and that she just lives down there. Uh, But it is a way of saying the things that they believed are being impacted by the way that Yahweh is acting in the story. So it's not the fact that Yahweh just brings these things that are kind of unfortunate for them to have to live through, but it's the idea that they would understand that to represent their God's lost power. That's exactly what it is. Because Mm -hmm. the chaos is coming. And so it's not like, man, I have to swat all these bugs or there's... You know, blood in the river, it's like, I've defeated that God. Mm-hmm. I've defeated That's exactly that right. God. The chaos has sprung into the kingdom of Egypt. One of our walls has fallen, and the enemy has breached our defenses. Whichever God it is needs to step up their their power and, and, and do battle here. So Pharaoh was seen as a, was, was seen or, I don't know, claimed to be a God, and he kept chaos... Well, kept the workers working, kept things becoming bigger. Yeah, beautiful. his job is to status quo everything. Okay, that's that's the goal of Pharaoh. So then Moses shows up. God sends him to deliver the people of Israel, and he sends him with a message uh, from Yahweh to Pharaoh, and and this becomes the essence of what the story is about. And it begins in chapter five, uh, verses one and two. Rose, would you read that? Mm-hmm. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. 
But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. This line becomes the most important concept in the entire story. And so if you're reading the ideas about the Exodus, none of this is random, and all of it is done to show Egypt and Pharaoh and Israel who is the Lord. That's what this is about. Uh, If you look at Exodus 7, verses 4 and 5, Jacob, would you hit those? Pharaoh will not listen to you, and then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Then when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. That's what it's about. God is trying to communicate who he is. That's what all of this is about. And the author of Exodus, whoever you think that is, Moses or one of the scribes or some guy named Tim, I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, But they repeat this line that you will know that I am the Lord. They repeat it seven times in the plague story. That is almost the ancient equivalent of the highlighter pen. They are trying to draw your attention to this. Everything here is about, I am the Lord, and I am going to do something that has never been done before. And honestly, something that the Egyptians didn't really have a category for. The gods were all supposed to stay in their lanes, and everything was supposed to go well. This god wants to be worshipped in the wilderness. That's weird. That's the wrong place. The gods shouldn't be out in the wilderness. The gods should be right here in the land of Egypt. But instead, the God of Israel makes Eden wherever he wants it to be. It's not localized in one territory that the Egyptians were enjoying on their riverbanks. The Israelites experience everywhere they go. Manna shows up, water and springs erupt from places where there wasn't water and springs. It's this wandering pocket of Eden. Can you imagine the conversation like, what kind of God to go out in the wilderness to do this little meal or worship. I was like, who, uh, who does that? Yeah. Anyway, so I can just imagine the conversation. I have a question probably for Jacob more than anybody. You mentioned uh, Sunday when you were preaching, and I've heard you say this several times about you can see the mercy of God through these Old Testament stories. Yeah. When, you, when you read this and it says that you will know that I am the Lord, I read that almost like a, if you're not going to listen to me, I'll prove to you who yeah. I am. And it, it comes in a way that's very uncomfortable with mm-hmm. this. So when we're trying to talk about the heart of God or the mercy that God shows, it almost seems like he's talking to his four-year-old and he won't listen, and God says, okay, you don't want to know who I am, I'll prove to you who I am. You know, bring it on, bend over, and let me smack you on the backside here. So to me, that's kind of what I'm getting from this idea yeah. here is that God's kind of bringing a sledgehammer down, and, and I don't know if that is how I'm misreading that or he's... No, I... I we, knock, we talk that he's trying to communicate who he is, but it seems to me like he's doing it in a abrasive manner yeah. here. It is abrasive, but there's also real elements of mercy in the story. The Egyptians are always permitted uh, to become part of Israel, to abandon their gods, to later on to put the blood on their doorframe. It doesn't seem to say either that God is coming to judge the people uh, or the Egyptian people, but to judge the gods. And and I, I would include Pharaoh in, in to that mix. I mean, my personal um, opinion, but... Uh, I know that that's something that we see in that. 
Um, we also see that there's there are many others that leave with Israel, which mm-hmm. very much could be some of the Egyptian people who also believed in, to, in their God, even though I know they plundered quite a bit. And when they left, it's very possible that a lot of Egyptians or slaves or whatever left along with Israel. So you watch this idea of proclaiming who he is, um, though it seems very a terrible thing of what happens with, with all of the plagues. But the proclamation... Like I think where we're going in, in, in this um, in the podcast is talking about uh, the God of gods is is way bigger and way better um, and more than you can ever imagine than anything that they've been worshiping or putting their faith and hope in. And come follow me. I, I see this invitation versus uh, punishment, and it's gonna the punishment happens. Hard seasons. I I mean. I know God could have brought me home, could have brought me back to church and brought me back to himself lots of ways, but I had to hit rock bottom. I was in the bottom of a pit before I actually looked up. Because so I was proud. You know, I thought I had to figure it out. And so, I, you know, I think this is one of those, um, put them through some some difficult seasons, and, and then it's not that it ended bad. I mean, in the sense of like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm inviting my people to come, and I'm going to take them to a place of flowing with milk and honey. And this, it, this is an invitation. It reminds me of the fall, too, though, because when you mentioned in the fall, uh, you know, Satan gets cursed, but Adam and Eve don't get cursed. And so it's similar to that in this situation where the yeah. gods are kind of the ones that are taking the forefront of Yeah, of, you yeah know, there God's is an realm. element where God is bringing judgment on Egypt and the Egyptians because these are people who have sown. Not, well, and they've gone away. Yeah, and they're going to reap. They've joined. Uh, but never beyond their ability to endure. The Lord is incredibly gracious to them. Uh, He makes it incredibly awkward for them. Mm -hmm. But Pharaoh is is given the opportunity right away, you know, hey, let my people go. And he says, "Uh, no, I don't want to do that. I don't know who your God is, but mine are better. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I have no intention of submitting to your God. And, And as a matter of fact, I want you to get out of here. And he doesn't listen at all to what Moses is saying. And so what is needed is a display of the authority of God over the gods of the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. And that begins in, uh, in Pharaoh's very throne room with uh, the staffs. You have two uh, sets of staffs, uh, two trees. Uh, you have uh, Moses and Aaron. Are those eights? Eights, yeah. Yes. You also have the magicians or the sorcerers, the Khartoumim of Pharaoh. And they are there, and he says, to show you that my God is God, he throws the staff down on the ground, and it becomes a serpent. It was common to, if someone claimed to be a prophet or a follower of a God, that to ask them to prove it. That is, actually I, is the purpose of miracles in, the NIV, in Scripture, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, is to authenticate a message. Okay. You don't usually find people just wandering around doing good deeds if they don't also have a message um, that they're preaching or okay. teaching. Uh, the the Pharaoh's assistants, though, they, they throw their staffs That's down, right. and there is a manifestation of demonic power. Right. Their staffs become serpents. Now you would think, okay, you did it, I did it, now who's better? And, and the Lord seems to have thought of this because the staff of Aaron devours <laughs> their staffs. That would be awesome to watch. And, and so there's this awkward moment of, yeah, we just really had this divine miracle moment and we checked you, but then two versus one, and we still lose. There, there's this element of awkwardness where the most powerful magicians in Egypt have lost to this lost. nobody out of the wilderness, and, and it frightens them. 
who is this? They didn't see Moses as just some Hebrew. They saw him as a representative of an unknown God from out of the wilderness. And then the Bible sets up 10 plagues. And there actually is a system to the way that these are set up. You'll find them in three sets. Uh, The very first plague in the morning at the river. The very first, or rather the fourth plague, is early in the morning at the river. Uh, And the very, I think it's the seventh plague, is early in the morning, and it was hail like no one had ever seen. Uh, The second plague and the uh, fifth plague and the eighth plague go together. They happen in Pharaoh's palace. Uh, And then in the very last one, there's no warning. So there is a structure to this. God isn't just making stuff up but it is connected to a a supernatural message. And that's highlighted in the text by the way they wrote it down. This is how ancient peoples talked. This is how they described things. It wasn't just a running news commentary on what was going on. Uh, God does 10 acts of uh, punishment, of decreation on Egypt. And that corresponds back to Genesis 1, when God speaks 10 times to make the world. Here he speaks again 10 times to unmake the world. And if you're jumping ahead in the Exodus story, when you get to Mount Sinai, God speaks 10 times up there, and he gives them the 10 words or the 10 commandments. This number is connected to to teaching a concept. Just like I knew when I saw your shirt, you got your red, white, and blue, I knew that you were saying something about America. America. I knew that because of the way you were dressed. You didn't have to tell me that. You didn't have to explain it. Those colors and symbols mean things. When you see the uh, the colors of your favorite football team or of your, I don't know, your favorite restaurant, the symbol itself has meaning. And the idea wasn't invented in the modern world. That goes way back into the beginnings of, of time. And so This is a picture that God's voice is sovereign in Egypt. The word of God is at work here. And if they don't repent, they're going to be judged. Now, the imagery focuses around the idea of Moses's staff. And we've talked about in the Bible before how the word eights, which means tree, is the word that means even things that are made out of tree. You don't have a word that just means wood. Uh, This table is an eights. Anything that's made out of tree remains and keeps that identity. And so wielding the staff of God is a way of projecting and remembering the tree of God, the life-giving power that it represents. It's not that it was a magic wand. And you'll get lots of people who talk about this. Well, it needs to be alder wood, or it needs to be this kind of wood, and you have to soak it in this mineral and this stuff, and then it will take on these qualities. And it just has to be a stick that God wants to I, use. I used to always, I mean, when I read the story, and uh, when you go to Exodus chapters like two, and when God's calling Moses, and he's just freaking out, like doesn't want to go. I'm not. It's not me. I'm too old. I don't want to speak. And He's doing all these things to try to prove. And, and there's one question that he asks uh, is, what's that in your hand? And um, I don't know, for some reason, when I, when, I, when I saw that, when God's telling him what he's going to do, um, and he's holding a, a, a staff, you know, that he was using to shepherd, uh-huh. like, 
how um, God, you okay? This has nothing to do with sheep, in my mind, yeah. right? Uh-huh. But he's like, I don't need you to have lots of things. I I will use what you already have, and so and you'll watch. I mean, as he as he's doing a lot of this stuff, God utilizes the staff quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, and it's phenomenal to me in the sense that it has very little use. If I'm going to war, if I'm going to war or battle somebody, if I'm going to go challenge some staff, I'm, I'm just not. It's not a good tool, but. When the Lord is behind it, and guy can he can use anything uh, can use a donkey, and just I thought it was really a cool thing. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about more about the staff, but this idea that God just yeah. will use whatever you have. I don't need to have these specific gifts or talents or abilities. No, the God I need to walk is behind God. the one who does the work right. here, not the stick. But the stick it's is a symbol because when you look at, for instance, Pharaoh's magicians, they don't say, "Well, let's go find sticks." Also. They have staffs because there is a symbolic representation between a staff and power. They go together. Even I don't know if you guys watched the coronation of the King of England, but no. uh, there's a there's I a. I was um, I was at a Sasquatch festival that weekend. What yeah. I was, we had way um, more important. Yeah. Give us your best Sasquatch call. I will not. You will do not. That, that no. would be the highlight. Also, I we keep, well, we don't want him to show up now. We're recording. Yeah. <laughs> so I keep thinking, like you know, Janice and Jammer throw their staff down, and like the snake eats it, and and this is just my how my brain works. They're like starting to freak out. Like that's my favorite staff. You know, like oh, you know, this is for my great great grandpa. Anyway, well, no, there's a there's an element of that. Those staffs <laughs> would have been handed down most likely I in know. their. Uh, in their families or in their order, and they would have been considered to be magical. Mm. Pharaohs used to that. Was it it something that was passed to the next person? It could be, sure. I just thought that, and that's just what I was thinking. Or it could be something that they made themselves as as some sort of uh, spiritual journey that that they went on. But there is a connection to a staff and power to the way that it's done. And so when Moses is wielding the staff... It isn't just God saying, I don't know, what's, what's laying around? God knew what Moses was going to bring up the mountain. Right. None of this is accidental. God knows who you are and who Moses is, and he's going to use you. Yeah. He's, he's thought of this ahead of time. And so when you then see the actions of God in play, it is purposeful the way that it's set up. You find this repeated structure down at the river, Next is in Moses or in Pharaoh's house, and then the next one happens without warning. And then the next one happens down at the river. The next one happens at Pharaoh's house, and the next one happens without warning. And then the next set is all kinds of messed up. But there's a reason for that too. Are these the kind of sh- like four, and then this is like probably a stretch, but these like pictures of um, it, it's it's the tree that's bringing some God using a tree to bring victory or to bring. Uh, life, whether it's the water or whatever the case is, mm-hmm. that we're going to foreshadow something else is going to come later. So I heard a, a really good um, discussion of this as describing the nature of God or, or the, the staff, if you want, or the power yeah. of God as describing it like the sun. It, it gives life-giving power to something like a plant. It can also scorch your shoulders and completely destroy life. It depends on how you approach it or where you are. If you're approaching God in the ways that he has designed, there's love and there's health. What is it that the psalmist says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But they're not designed to comfort the wolf. They're designed to defend the sheep. And because you are under the protection of God, the staff of the Lord is wielded for Mm -hmm. you. 
And so when we talk to people who are, who are afraid of supernatural beings or of hauntings or of describing, the, you know, I, I don't know what's going on, there's a territorial spirit, all these things, we don't send out bottles of holy oil and water and say, you know, repeat after me and do these things. Instead, the defense is in the presence of the shepherd. It's in being with Jesus. It's yeah. in the, the love of Jesus. Now, can you use symbols? Sure, but you got to know that it's just a symbol. It's a thing that represents something else. Uh, the cross is that way. You can make the sign of the cross, and it isn't really the cross. You could, I don't know, hang one up on your wall, uh, and it's just a representation of the real one. There were lots of other crosses that existed <laughs> in the Makes me think of world. like what Israel's carrying the Ark of the Covenant ahead of them to so God will shot beat. Yeah, and... God's not going to be manipulated. Oh, he right. just isn't. Right. And so, so this, John, I got an interesting oh, yeah. question. I feel uh-huh. like uh, so Moses has the staff, and I, I totally understand that the staff is just representing God and His power. But you know, He throws it down, and there's one snake, and then they throw theirs down. There's two snakes. Right. What was there any responsibility on Moses to maintain faith? during that activity for that to happen. Yeah, you and I were talking about this concept the other day. Uh, there's a verse that says, and having done all, stand. That's what Moses seems to have done. I have come here. I have thrown down the staff. I did what he told me to do. Yeah. Now it's up to you. But you think of Moses. He doesn't want to do it anyway. When right. he first gets you know, said, he, he says, I'm not the best option for this. I'm too old. I can't even talk right, this, that, and the other. Then he goes into Pharaoh's room. So he's going into enemy territory. And I'm sure it's tough enough just to have a conversation with the guy, let alone say, let my people go, you know. So this is a big ordeal. And then he throws it down, and they're like, okay, we're going to bombard you with double trouble. Mm. So I'm sure Moses wasn't sitting there like, yep, we got him right where we want him, guys. You know, I I feel like he had to have some kind of fear or doubt or Mm. something. It's like, man, there's nothing I can do. I'm in trouble here. But there's nothing in the text that says, like, you know, then Moses was worried. Or anything along those lines. So if you would infer that he was strong in his faith and strong in his knowledge that God was going to take over here, but if it was me, I don't think I'd be very comfortable at that point in time. Well, and you have to remember also, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's court. He knows who these magicians are. He's well aware of the powers of the court and who Pharaoh is believed to be. Mm -hmm. And if Moses is is anything like the rest of the world, he would have believed that he was also in the presence of these territorial spirits. And so there was a real sense in which Moses was way out of his comfort zone. Mm -hmm. He was asked to do something dangerous. But the text, to me, infers that the fact that Moses said yes and went was his responsibility. That is not during the action that he had to do anything. No, he's brave. He stood. He could have run away. He could have got up there and then, I don't know how he got to Pharaoh in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's not like you just like stop by his like secretary. You know, like, like, Can you I know, make an appointment? You know, um, he, knew, he had to know some of the, the, like the, the senior guards and that kind of stuff. Like, you know, I'm not saying he was high-fiving people, but I mean, you would think he would know some, some of these people. From yeah, there. well, I kind of think years, but. like if they remembered him, they thought he was dead. Yeah. He fled into the wilderness, and all of a sudden he's come back looking wild-eyed and prophet-like. I think there was an element in which the Egyptians were a little weirded out that mm-hmm. here's this man come back from the wild, and he's come with a message for Pharaoh, and then a display of power that's, that's challenged by the supernatural evil that's there, but it's overcome. 
I know we're getting ready to say something. Rose is thinking on something. Yeah, here. no, it's, it's you got to use your elbows, Rose, I'm, to get in I'm here. I'm fine. I've just these been, are bullies. Yeah, Rose, I know. I've, Rose, you got to push. It's boys' club, guys, and I'm here now for it. <laughs> Grab a pipe. All right. So questions. Uh, Moses has a shepherd staff. What do the magicians have? Does everybody back then just have a staff? And sometimes yeah, I kind of picture them like you know, Mr. Peanut. No. No. That's a cane. That's a cane. Oh, that's right. Uh, Yeah, no, a staff would, like, for instance, yeah, the, like I was talking about the coronation, they have, uh, it's a small ceremonial scepter staff. Uh, Pharaoh had a a crook that he carried that was a small curve. We we got really great example of these when they dug up uh, King Tut's uh, tomb. Uh, But these were men of power, and they would have had symbols of office. And so the staffs that they have, we don't know a tremendous amount about them, but it would be foolish to assume that this man whose life is dedicated to the worship of the false gods and the loyalty to the demonic powers just was like, I really love this one. Uh, it would have had meaning to them all. If you think of like a, a grand wizard or something, you know, like Harry Potter. Or yeah, you have to Lord have a staff. Oh, you're not Gandalf really equipped. Man. You're not I've equipped been, unless yeah. you have some kind of, yeah, no. you know, tree that you're walking around Why with. Why don't you guys bring it back? Somebody. Well, here. so we're going to read it like a little passage in chapter seven. Lord, I wish someone would. <laughs> bring back the staff or bring back to the world. John's got the beard with. already. I mean. I think. All right. Exodus seven. We're well, going to, we're going to hit well, the Nile River. Literally. Let me ask this. But can I just read this real fast? Sure. Because it says this is the very beginning of chapter seven. Okay. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Yeah, because Moses wasn't speaking. No, yes, I understand that. Yeah. But I, I, I got that part, but I've made you like God, like Elohim, mm-hmm. to Pharaoh. Yeah, the idea here is, what was Pharaoh? He was a physical manifestation of the power of the gods. Moses is that to Pharaoh. He he's okay. almost an anti-Pharaoh. Okay. okay. I got you. Okay, so then they're going to square That's off cool. at the Nile River. Chapter 7 verse 20. Right. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. How'd they do that? The water's already bloody. Anyway, I wondered that um, too. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Yeah, I watched that Prince of Egypt cartoon, and they had like a little bowl of water, and I just put some yeah, it, it doesn't there. say. <laughs> but did you notice that once again it emphasizes the presence of the tree, yeah, of the staff, yeah. Now, to an ancient Egyptian, the river Nile was a god. It was the blood of the god Osiris. So it's it, like it struck the the god and it was bleeding out. And he dying. began to bleed. This was the source of everything that is right in Egypt. And it's bleeding. And the life of the dial becomes death. And the 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 um, magicians of Pharaoh's court, all that they can do is um, repeat. There's, there's no sense in which they're creating their own cures for anything. They seem to be locked in an echo chamber that they are mocking or able to do lesser bits of what God has done. But in no sense do they seem to be able to create on their own. 
They're, they're almost an echo chamber of the things that God has done. That's why babies were thrown into the Nile. Because yeah, I think feed the, there's a very real sense in which this is the blood of the innocents crying mm-hmm. out. God said, I have not forgotten the children who you threw into the Nile, and their blood is on your head. And so, Martin, going back to your question earlier, there is a very real sense in which there is judgment on the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. They permitted a horrible thing to happen, mm-hmm. and it's coming back to, to haunt them here. No, I was uh, listening and tracking just a little bit, but I was thinking how the Lord could have changed the Nile into anything. He could have just made it toxic water. He could have pulled a dead sea on it, you know, but he chose to turn it. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) It's a concrete river. (laughs) So, uh, no. Come on, Jacob. I lost my train of thought. (laughs) Blood is usually a good thing. The Bible says the life of the body is in the blood, but in this case, blood brought death instead of life. Yeah, so the Egyptians have a whole theology built on this, that the blood of Osiris brings life. Now, what happened to him? He really died. Like, he's not bringing, his very nature has been twisted upside down. And the other gods of the Egyptians, you have gods like Hecate or of uh, Hapi, um, who is uh, this really strange fellow, the the goddess Isis, uh, Knum, the creator god, all of these beings are tied up in their beliefs about the Nile. And so the Egyptians didn't just think, oh, there goes our water source. They thought that their god had died. And this is the very place where Pharaoh should be most powerful, on the banks of the river. Well, especially because the Nile was like a very narrow strip of life through wilderness on all sides. It's completely surrounded by... Now, it does extend for miles on either side, but but it's not huge. If you look at a map, man, it's green for a little bit, and Mm -hmm. then it's all wilderness outside of that. So this would have been devastating But there's probably I I can't think of a better way to basically declare war Mm -hmm. on the gods, right? I mean, if you look at especially the other ten plagues, like this is a good one to start with. Each of these plagues is geared towards one or more of the deities of Egypt. Now, for us, who barely know the names of any of the deities of Egypt, that can get lost in translation because the Bible does something really powerful if you think about it, for but, instance. But what I'm saying is compared oh, to the ahead. other plagues, sorry, I cut you off there. The, if you're looking at like locusts or frogs, how does that indicate that the god has been killed? the way that this does with the Nile. Well, I'm going to tell you, because there was a god, for instance, uh, who was called Hecate, and Hecate is the god of magic, the god of reproduction, and the god of keeping things in balance. And her head is a frog, and her body is that of a woman, and it was her job to make sure that the life in the river stayed right, that it didn't get an abundance of one thing that ate up all of everything, and then the the whole system is out of whack. And so when all the frogs appear out of nowhere... It's out of balance. Hecate mm-hmm. is out of balance. Yeah. Ma'at has come into their world. When the sky turns black, they looked at, well, Ra was riding the clouds, and now it's gone black. Where is he? It begins to rain hailstones and fire, and they thought to themselves, boy, it's really blustery out there today. No, they would have seen that as war in the heavens. All of these plagues are connected to deities that the ancients worshipped, and they would have recognized it right away. Anyone who grew up in Egypt would have known this, but the Bible purposefully doesn't use their names. 
it also takes away the name of the main bad guy. And we call him Pharaoh. Why does the Bible strip these deities and their earthly representatives of their identity? Why do you think? Don't want people looking into them, I guess. Or yeah. Compared to God, they are nothing. They're nothing. The whole point is they're not even worth They're naming. not even worth talking about. I will strip them of their name. This is a, a way of saying you're forgotten. You yeah. are the defeated enemy. You are my slave. You have been broken in battle, and only I am left, the Lord of lords, the God of hosts. Intentional disrespect. Intentional disrespect. Moses' name is there. Aaron's name is there. we got a bunch of names of random Israelites that are floating around in this story. None of the Egyptians are named. I have None of, of the gods are named. I've thought of that a lot because, like, Pharaoh's not a name. It's no. a title, right? Like, yeah, it means the big house. So, you yes. you know, you wouldn't just say king. If you're nope. talking about somebody from the past, you would say king and if you whatever did his name was. that, I would assume you were making a statement. Right. That you were purposefully not saying his name. It's mm. it's it's a intentional disrespect that's happening in the story. So shout out Nick. It's like when we say that team up north, instead of saying the actual school, you know, from Ohio State Buckeyes, mm. and then we say that am I, team am up I north. allowed to say their name? If you want, but. I mean, I'm a Mountaineers fan, so I don't care. <laughs> but it's the same idea. We we strip the name from yeah, and the, the Bible has done that. That doesn't mean that Moses didn't understand that. Mm-hmm. And actually, when, when you read through the story, you, you should notice pretty quickly that the Egyptian magicians are only able to uh, mimic what God is doing up to a certain point. Uh, look at chapter 8 and verses 17 through 19. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So this is really strange, because up until this point, the demonic powers have been able to hold their own with what God was doing. Now something is different. Something has changed. And what we see here is the magicians are no longer in good conversations with their deities. Something has changed. Either those gods' power or their ability to do things, or perhaps the magicians themselves were no longer able to perform the spells or whatever it is that they were doing. There's a lot of really interesting theories here. Uh, about possibly them not being able to enter into their temples because they were unclean. Uh, And there's all kinds of them, but whatever it is, it broke the system. And so even the gods' uh, representatives, the priests, are looking to Pharaoh and saying, this is unlike anything that we have. And what it's pointing back to is who is the Lord? I am that I am. And he's humbling the people of Egypt. And the Bible makes this really clear multiple times what the purpose of the plagues is. And it isn't just to get Israel out of Egypt. Because there comes a point where God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh seems to have been at that point willing to say, okay, let's let him go. But there were other people in play besides Pharaoh. Let's take a look at Exodus 12, 12 through 13. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this has two realms in which it reaches out. It is a judgment on the people and the power of Egypt. It is also a judgment on the gods of Egypt. They're not imaginary beings. These are demonic counterfeit beings who have set themselves up as rivals to God. They aren't really. They're in rebellion, and the Lord is humbling here the the courts of darkness. And before you think, oh, well, that's just one verse in there. Maybe that's just a typo. Look at Numbers 33, verse 4. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgment. On their gods the Lord executed judgment. Jeremiah 46, 25 says, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, said, Behold, I am bringing punishment upon Ammon of Thebes, and Pharaoh, and Egypt, and her gods and her kings, upon the Pharaoh, and whose trust is in him. This is the reason that the plagues look like they do. God is not just humbling Pharaoh, God is attacking the gods of Egypt. There is a supernatural war going on. When the sky went black, that was a way of God saying, I have broken the power of your gods. When the river ran with blood, this was a way of God saying, I have broken the power of your gods. Now, how exactly that worked in the unseen world, we're not told. But I doubt it was polite. I doubt it was nice. So is there a spectrum of gods in Egypt when he strikes the Nile, when he strikes the firstborn, when he strikes is there a oh, yeah. greater and lesser? So mm-hmm. who would be the who would be the big cheese? The big cheese. Well, gods? it depends on what you're after. Yeah. Osiris is probably uh your your most important deity. Yeah. Um Ra. Ra Amon Ra, yeah. yeah. It depends on the time period. There was a time when the Aten was the only god that was worshipped. Uh, Knum was the, is the god who makes human beings. Um, so it just depended. Um, there was a lot of different gods that were in charge of different things. And what you see in the story of the plagues is God goes after them. And he represents this to the people. It's as though the Eden of Egypt is unmade. And it's left broken. It seems like the dust, the dust part there in the middle... Mm-hmm. They can't touch the dust. They can't make anything out of it. But God formed us from the dust of the earth. Yep. You know, I love that. And the um, plagues kind of began and ended with blood. And that's pretty cool, too, because the first blood that was brought on them brought so much death. It even says what? That, that it stank. Like very specific. Yeah. The fish died and everything stank. Everything was wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the last part, I mean, I know it's not a plague of blood, but the blood is what saved them. You know, the Passover lamb that they painted on the lentils. I just think that's pretty beautiful. And so in my mind, I think we end it with the crucifixion. And that is to say that all of this finds its ultimate fulfillment when Christ broke the powers of darkness at the cross. Satan thought that if he could crucify Jesus, he would bring him under his own authority. 
Instead, what happened, the Bible says that if the powers had known, they would never have crucified the Lord of Jesus, or the Lord of the, the Lord of hosts. They would never have crucified Jesus. And what we find is that our God hanging on a cross broke the darkness. Darkness covered the world and light ever after. There is this sense in which the story is ultimately fulfilled in the life and love of Jesus. And so God has continued to do this. There are territorial spirits, but they are no rival to God or what God is doing. They'll present themselves as much stronger than they are in reality. But our God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, mighty and awesome. 